Hey listeners, in case you missed it, last week we dropped a special podcast series called Rediscovering SB 1070. It's five full episodes diving into the history of one of Arizona's most controversial and divisive immigration laws. Search for Rediscovering SB 1070 and subscribe to hear all five episodes today. Okay, back to the show. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. Yvonne is out on furlough, so I'll be hosting this episode solo. And don't worry, she will be back next week. Today, we're talking about an outbreak of COVID-19 at an immigrant holding facility in Arizona. The Eloy Detention Center in Southern Arizona holds people facing removal from the U.S. for immigration violations. Many of those people are waiting outcomes of asylum applications or legal application to remain in the U.S. The center is run by CoreCivic, a private, for-profit prison company under contract by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE. Since the start of the pandemic, immigrants' rights attorneys and activists have pleaded with the U.S. government to release migrants from these holding centers. They say the centers pose a threat to the health and well-being of those inside. Now, several months into the pandemic, the Arizona Republic has reported that approximately 40% of the staff at the Eloy Detention Center have been infected with COVID-19. And internal emails at the facility as of June 22nd show that at least 270 detainees tested positive. That number is far higher than what ICE's data shows on its website. Today, we're breaking down the steps that led to this startling outcome. Here to join me today is immigration reporter Daniel Gonzalez. Dan, thanks for joining me. Thank Thank you very very much much for having me. So to start out, Dan, give us a little bit more background on the Eloy Detention Center itself and the situation going on there right now. Well, Eloy Detention Facility, it's a, it's a prison-like facility that's located in the middle of the desert in Eloy, Arizona, which is about an hour south of Phoenix. It's a 1,500-bed facility, and um, they, they hold immigrants there. There are immigrants who are some of them are have final orders of removals which means they're waiting to be deported and there are other immigrants who are fighting their deportation or there are other immigrants who are seeking asylum in the united states and for one reason or another they're being held inside a facility rather than being uh, allowed to adjudicate their cases um, freely outside of the detention facility Dan, give us a a little bit more specific information about the numbers and how it's affecting these detainees. Yeah, so uh, in in late May and early June, there was still only a very few number of detainees that had been um, infected at the Eloy facility. And then those numbers skyrocketed over the first weekend in in June. They went from just having a couple dozen cases to over 120-some cases. And since then, the numbers have continued to grow. The most recent data shows that I think it's about 250 detainees have been infected with the coronavirus. Now, they're not all infected at the same time. That's the cumulative number as the uh, ICE officials and the course of 
the people have, have pointed out, that that's the total number of people who have been infected. But there is still a high number of people actively being monitored with the virus. I think the last number I saw was 116. But overall, there are dozens and dozens of these immigration facilities around the country where there have been outbreaks. But the outbreak at the Eloy facility is the second largest outbreak in the country. That 250 number, that's the second highest toll of any facility in the United States. And the active number also is the second. At one point, they had the highest active number, but I think they're currently the second highest uh, total number. So it's it's a major outbreak. And then in addition, CoreCivic, uh, in response to um, a request I had made, revealed to us that 128 of their staff had also been infected, and that constituted more than 40% of their entire staff had contracted the, the coronavirus. Okay. Um, so clearly the situation there has become pretty serious for the staff and for the migrants who are held there. Um, can you take us to the beginning where it all started and, and when you first began looking into all this? Now, I had been covering this issue from the beginning when the very first cases started showing up over in the La Palma facility, which is located across the street. And at one point, they had the second largest um, outbreak, in the, uh, or one of the largest outbreaks in the United States. But the virus, you know, it hadn't really gone into Eloy. And then the numbers started showing up there um, in early June. And then there was that huge spike. But what was really set off kind of the alarm bells is that on June 14th, um, a correct senior correctional officer, 32-year-old man who uh, had worked there for a number of years, died uh, of possible coronavirus um, complications. He had been uh, um, hospitalized um, with uh, coronavirus, and then he passed away on that Sunday. So you've identified at least one person who uh, died from all this, a staffer. Um, do we have a sense as to how many overall have any detainees died? Have other staff members died? Do we have any sense of the number of hospitalizations associated with all this as well? No, as far as we know, there have been no other either staff coronavirus-related deaths or detainee-related deaths um, in the facilities in Arizona. There have now been three detainees who have died of coronavirus-related complications who were being housed at facilities in other states, but not in Arizona. Hospitalizations is something we don't know. We don't know how many staff have been hospitalized, and we also don't know of how many of the detainees uh, who tested positive inside any of the facilities in Arizona have been hospitalized. We have requested that information, but it's not been released to us. We also don't know how many other people in the community have been infected because of the outbreaks within those facilities, which is another major concern that was raised by the correctional officers that I interviewed. Okay, so to be clear, to this point, we know of at least one staff member who has died from COVID, and we know of other staffers and 
many detainees who have come down with the virus in the detention center. We still are awaiting any kind of explanation as to uh, how widely spread this may be in the community, but there are at least anecdotal examples of it going outside the detention center and, and now affecting others in the broader public. Dan, um, tell us more about the um, the concerns that you've heard from the correctional officers uh, in the way that the company has tried to manage this outbreak in the detention center. Well, both ICE and CoreCivic have released numerous statements emphasizing that they have very aggressively tried to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus inside detention facilities and that protecting the detainees and their staff is their highest priority. And I want to make clear that they have, they have very vigorously and emphatically emphasize that they are doing, they have done everything possible to protect their staff and, and their um, detainees. But the two correctional officers that I interviewed painted a very different picture of the conditions there. And they believe that these conditions that exist there uh, caused the outbreak to snowball within the facility, which ended up in turn infecting people outside the facility, relatives. And what were those conditions they mentioned? Some of the main concerns that they have described is that there's been rationing of um, masks and other PPE equipment. For example, they told me that early on, the N95 masks, which is uh, the, the more uh, sophisticated masks that not only prevent the spread you from infecting other people, that make it diff more, diff more difficult for you to actually be infected yourself. They told me that those masks were available early on and, and out of concern uh, for their safety and when the pandemic was really starting to gain a lot of attention back in, in uh, March, early March and late February, that they were wearing these masks and then they were told that, that they were um, wearing too many of those masks and all, then all of a sudden they, they, they said that the mat, those masks Become, became very scarce and became very difficult to find. Then, then the detainees started uh, expressing great concerns about um, being uh, exposed to staff who were going in and out of the facility. And then, then they told me that they, they started distributing masks inside the facility. But first it was to the um, detainees, but the um, staff didn't have them. And then they started, the staff started getting the masks. Um, but they said that they do distribute now masks to um, everybody. Everybody who's in there is required to wear a mask, but they said that the N95 masks are still very difficult or impossible to find. Okay, so definitely correctional officers were concerned about masks. What did they say about gloves or any other gear? I know your reporting has mentioned that too. They said that they received um, emails that people were wearing too many gloves and that they should not use more than three gloves, three pairs of gloves a day. And they said that that's impossible to do because of the number of times that they need to change their gloves. They also told me that um, when you have to go into certain pods, 
where they know there are people who are infected, they're supposed to wear like a gown, a protective gown, and that there was a shortage of those gowns. So uh, detention staff were being given um, plastic, just plastic, clear plastic bags with holes cut on, cold cut on them, and told to wear that inside those uh, as protection. They said that their their arms and their backs were were um, fully exposed. Um, so there was concerns about rationing rationing of PPE equipment. They also told stories about being forced to work um, when they were not feeling well because there was such a shortage. So many uh, detention uh, officers were getting sick. There was shortages of um, staff. So um, people would come in and say they have symptoms and they were being urged to continue working. Um, they, they, one, one of the uh, uh, anecdotes, one of the um, correctional staff told me was that somebody came in and said that they were sick and they were told by a supervisor, we're going to pretend we didn't hear that so that they could continue working. We're going to pretend we didn't hear that. That's amazing, if true. The one uh, correctional staff person who I quoted in the story um, told me that he had, he worked an intake and he had seen um, staffers sitting in a tent outside of the facility next to a um, swamp cooler and he what he understand what was happening is that these were correctional officers or staff who had came in and the, te- the thermometer showed that they potentially had a fever and they were being told to sit next to these uh, coolers until they um, they show that they were the temperature was okay for them to come in he told us also a story about someone who was going to be deported to Central America and the thermometer showed that they had a fever um, and um, they were told to hold a frozen water bottle against their forehead until they quote unquote tempt out and then they could mark down what the temperature was and then to be uh, so that they could be deported. Um, they also talked about there was some scenes where uh, large numbers of detainees were continuing to be transferred during this outbreak were potentially spreading the virus to other facilities. He, he gave an example of um, at one point there was 40, I believe it was 40 detainees that were told they were going to be transferred to another facility. And usually when detainees are transferred, um, they are transferred with, with all of their belongings, their cell phones, whatever money they came in with, their clothing, all of that stuff is supposed to be packed up and, and sent with the uh, detainee. But they described instances where they were told, don't pack up their stuff because they're going to be back in a, in a few days. And then they would question, well, why are they coming back? And they wouldn't be given a, an answer. They and they believe that the tr- these transfers were, were profit-driven, money-driven, um, that they used the term um, heads and beds where uh, the facilities are, rece- are paid by ICE under their contracts based on um, the number of people who they have in the facility at a given time. And so there was some, there was some uh, money motivation going on for transferring people from one facility to the other. So those are, those are all some of the examples of the conditions that these correctional officers described um, that they believed caused the um, coronavirus outbreak to snowball within that facility. Wow. 
Dan, you just went over a lengthy list of allegations against ICE and CoreCivic. I understand that you sent this list to both ICE and CoreCivic to allow them to respond, and they've completely denied them, saying each and every accusation is baseless. I think it's worth noting to our listeners, too, that CoreCivic sent you the inventory of the masks and gowns they had, and they claimed it was more than enough. So they've denied it aggressively, and they've said the health and well-being of their employees and the migrants are important to them. But looking at it more practically, can the facility even practice social distancing? It's one of the most basic precautions people are being asked to take. No, and that's been the the biggest concern about all of these congregate settings around the country. We're talking about you know nursing and jail, nursing homes and jails and and prisons, um, where you have large numbers of people in very living in very close tight quarters. And that's been the very big concern about these immigration facilities, especially uh, because people are are housed in these pods where you share a a cell with um, at least one other person where, and then you have these common areas where it is impossible to practice any kind of social distancing. It's also, you know, we've received many, many letters and, and, and phone calls from detainees have talked about not only about how terrified they are of getting sick in those facilities, but how they feel that there hasn't been, they haven't had adequate access to basic things like soap, uh, to, and, and, um, uh, hand sanitizer, things to help, um, protect themselves. But that's the biggest concern that medical staff have said about these congregate, congregate facilities is that you can't practice social distancing. The kinds of things, the basic things that really to prevent yourself from being infected is to stay away from other people who are infected and that is impossible very difficult in these facilities but unlike prison this is what where the what the immigration advocates have really tried to draw a distinction unlike prisons where people are you know serving out uh sentences for 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 after being convicted of crimes or they're awaiting their charges immigration detainees are civil infraction. So there are some people there who are under mandatory detention. Um, they might have committed crimes uh, as part of their record, and that's why they're being held in a facility that they might be considered flight risk. But there are many immigrants who are being held in these facilities where there's no reason why they can't be released on some kind of alternate form of detention, which would include like put it, you know, put giving them a GPS device on their ankle or um, having them check in uh, periodically, like on a weekly or monthly basis, with ICE to make sure that they're, you know, f- following through with their immigration cases. That's why there's been a bit a very big concern about these facilities because, for many of these immigration detainees, there's no reason why they have to be continued to be held in these uh, conditions where they are at higher risk of being infected and for those with underlying conditions becoming potentially seriously ill or dying. So are there any consequences to ICE when its staff or the detainees get sick? Do the infected have any recourse in those situations, judicial or, or otherwise? Well, we haven't seen anything like that now. I think we're, it's going to be interesting to see um, how some of the families of detention employees who have died because of coronavirus, whether they decide to take any kind of legal action. We haven't seen any of that yet. 
There have been lawsuits in the past that have been brought on behalf of detainees who have died in that in in facilities, and you know, this is part of the larger context here about the Eloy facility. Um, this this isn't kind of coming out of the blue. The Eloy facility is a facility that is known as the deadliest immigration detention facility in the United States. At least 15 um, people who were detained there in ICE custody have died um, over the last 10 to 12 years. I can't remember the exact number, how far we go, that number goes back. But there have been 15 detainee deaths there prior you know, to this coronavirus pandemic, um, including five people who committed suicide at that facility. So uh, based on your experience in covering all this, Dan, um, how does this sort of play itself out? What what needs to happen for these conditions to improve? And, and is that likely anytime soon? Well, <clears throat> there have been members of Congress where this, this has reached the level of, of, of becoming of great concern. And um, there has been an investigation launched and over uh, uh, one of the um, um, uh, oversight uh, organizations of Congress has launched an investigation to begin looking at this very issue of the response by both these private prison companies and ICE, uh, their response to the outbreaks at these facilities and whether they have adequately uh, uh, done enough to prevent and mitigate the spread of these uh, viruses. And with, it, it is it has been waning in the last week or two, which suggests that um, there are more aggressive measures being taken inside these facilities to try to, to um, limit those uh, the spread. But I think because of all the attention that's being given to this, we are seeing, starting to see a lot more pressure on ICE and Core Civic um, to to um, protect people, but I think it's this, the numbers show that there was a lag there, and that that's why we saw so many people being infected uh, in um, in the beginning, really in in um, uh, April, May. And, and into June. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. We will continue to follow your reporting. Where can listeners follow you on Twitter? My Twitter handle is at AZDanGonzalez. Okay, listeners, here are my afterthoughts uh, after that really compelling interview with Dan. Um, first off, I guess, is the the carrots and the sticks in a system like this really are sort of uh, in strange places. You have no desire to let these uh, detainees go when it involves uh, a privately run company like that. And the agency, in this case ICE, really is dealing with an administration that is not going to be turning people loose uh, at this moment, especially on the political calendar. We are just four months away from an election. This president and this administration really doesn't want to be seen as releasing people who they've already had in custody. 
custody on an issue that has been so central to the Trump administration's uh, get tough uh, approach to dealing with immigration and border security issues. So here we find ourselves in a pandemic with facilities that were never designed for this kind of situation and an administration especially ill-suited to dealing with the health ramifications of those kinds of situations. That is all we have for today, Gaggle listeners. If you just can't get enough of us, then don't forget to subscribe to Rediscovering SB 1070. That is Yvonne and I in a new five-part series. If you like it, leave us a review, and that really helps others find the show. This episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with oversight by Katie O'Connell. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And good news, Yvonne will be back with us next week. See you then.